Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. It is Wednesday. So glad you're with us on the Three Martini Lunch. Grab your stool. We have, do we have any good news? We do. We actually have good, bad, and crazy today. Our first good martini of the week. But Jim, I know there's been some other good news in the past 24 hours, at least uh, tangentially for you, because the big NFL news, just a couple of days before tomorrow's NFL draft, is that Tom Brady and Rob Gronkowski are reunited. By far, if you look at the stats in Brady's career, he's thrown more touchdown passes to his uh, former and now once again tight end than anyone else uh, in his 20 years in the league. Uh, This is a combo that uh, was devastating to a lot of teams, sadly, your Jets included. Now they're going to be reunited in Tampa Bay. Somehow it got worked out that Gronkowski has been traded because he had one year left on his Patriots contract. So Brady and Gronk are back together in Tampa. But Jim, it no longer affects the AFC East. I wonder how that finally feels for you. You know, my feelings are mixed, Greg. Um, There's a part of me that actually feels happy for these guys. As one sports writer put it, uh, there's probably no other person on earth who more accurately just his entire persona screams Tampa than Rob Gronkowski. Um, (laughs) But here's my fear, because I believe in the cruelty of these sports gods, particularly to us Jets fans, I can now see a scenario where the draft tomorrow night goes very well for the Jets. Despite my fury with Adam Gase, things start to come together. Um, they all of a sudden, you know, everything clicks. They make that big step. Uh, Darnold comes into his own. Greg Williams is the, the defensive maestro. We all know he is. The Jets make the playoffs. They win the AFC East. They tear through the, the, the playoffs and <laughs> finally return to the Super Bowl only to lose to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers <laughs> being led by Tom Brady and Rob Gronkowski. Everybody's like, oh, the Jets wouldn't do that well. Now you understand how the Jets could succeed. This, this football gods will allow us to succeed as long as it sets us up for an even more heartbreaking failure. Well, Jim, I, I see the concern. However, if your worst case scenario is getting back to the Super Bowl for the first time in 51 years, I think that's not the worst, worst case scenario I've ever heard. So, yeah, uh, I mean, the other thing also somebody observed is that, you know, in a way that would be particularly cruel to New England to have, you know, Brady's like, you know, most unexpected triumph occur in, in you know, he'd go to the hall as a, as a Buccaneer probably. <laughs> Could be 52 years, actually, not to rub it in, but I uh, just ah. read the math in my head. All right, let's get on to our good martini now, Jim. And uh, more help for small business owners is on the way. Uh, a lot of folks know, especially if you need the money, that the Paycheck Protection Program uh, was quickly drained with a lot of small businesses needing that money and some non-small businesses ended up getting some of that money too, which needs to be addressed. But On Tuesday, the Senate passed a nearly $500 billion interim coronavirus bill by voice vote that includes additional money for the Small Business Loan Program, as well as for hospitals and testing, making way for the legislation to become law as soon as the end of the week. And now you've got uh, the different parties uh, shimmying around for credit here. You've got Pelosi and Schumer saying that they're proud to have secured an interim aid bill that went beyond the initial Republican proposal. Uh, saying, quote, Democrats flipped this emergency package from an insufficient Republican plan that left behind hospitals and health and frontline workers and did nothing to aid the survival of the most vulnerable small businesses on Main Street. Meanwhile, Mitch McConnell's out there saying, look, there were small businesses that were on the brink of extinction because you people dragged your feet for 12 days on this. And as a result, yeah, even hospitals are hurting now. So uh, not sure you guys deserve the pat on the back. So 
while the blame game goes around, Jim, small businesses are going to have uh, over $300 billion more to uh, assist them to stay afloat until they're allowed to reopen. Yet another giant government spending aid package is not something I like to use as the good martini. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one, I don't think anyone can dispute that it's needed. It's better that it get passed than it get delayed for another week. Uh, of people going back and forth. You know, my argument from the beginning was get the money out the door. You can claw it back in a whole bunch of different ways. And now we're hearing the arguments about uh, institutions getting it that, that don't need it. I think it was Shake Shack that said, you know what? We don't need the money we're getting. Um, we, we realize that uh, we are better capitalized than many other restaurants. The funding that really drove people crazy, uh, going to Harvard University, you know, and all the other ones that have their uh, big institute, their their big endowments uh, and things like that. Keeping in mind that these universities and, and, and institutions, they do employ poor people, right? There are people who are in the service industries at the cafeterias and eateries and campus store and all that other stuff who are losing their jobs too. Um, those people need help too. But what's more is that this is all administered through a prearranged um, uh, Department of Education program. This is not something that is being, you know, that they sent lobbyists to Capitol Hill to get this sort of thing. But even then, if you want to tax Harvard University more down the road to get this money back, fine, right? You know, there there are ways to work this through. Um, on the corner to right, just moments ago, I have a corner post going up that, that that just said, you know, here's the thing: what we need to reopen our economy very soon. We need to do it very carefully. But if we do it carefully you should be able to get some of these factories reopened. You should be able to get assembly lines moving. Uh, bars and restaurants, I think, are going to be particularly tricky. But most of your stores, as long as you're doing social distancing, you probably want to wear them. In fact, you're probably, most places are probably going to have to wear a mask. You, you want to wear a mask. You don't want to dilly-dally in your interactions with other people. But you should be able to go out and start buying stuff. And eventually, that will get you know, businesses that, are, that have managed to survive all this uh, back on their feet. They're going to get a little bit more cash flow going. Greg, we could even go crazy and allow people in Michigan to buy carpet or flooring, furniture, garden centers, <laughs> or even paint, you know. It's going to be interesting to watch this now. You got some folks worried about inflation because of all this spending. Uh, we didn't really see it with all the quantitative easing. So I'm not sure who to believe on this front, but uh, a giant inflation problem is the last thing we need as well. But I will say just anecdotally, uh, I was uh, part of an interview on a different podcast yesterday that involved a small business owner in Indiana saying that the PPP loan that she got through the first wave of this, phase three officially, uh, probably kept the business afloat at least 60 days. Without it, she said they'd be planning their going out of business sale as soon as things reopen. So it is making that much of a difference. And we'll see if there needs to be another wave of this. Yesterday, the Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin said at this point he didn't think so, but he also said that... Uh, the first wave also probably saved 30 million jobs. And since we've lost 22 million, Jim, 30 million more would obviously have been cataclysmic. Yeah. You know, I'm just going to quote Yuval Levin, uh, who made a kind of interesting point. He, he summarized it really, you know, he's, he's a terrific writer and all kinds of stuff, but he makes the point, you can't replace our economy with government spending. It's, it's just too big. It's just too much. So what we've done through these past couple of relief bills, we've bought time, Right. We have minimized our exposure. All of us have, almost all of us have lived under quarantine rules that we find uh, strict and a pain in the neck and really bothersome and perhaps in some cases, you know, downright draconian. We did what we needed to do in most cases. Now, I'm not thrilled with what we've seen. The numbers yesterday were not great. Most of these places have not. We haven't seen that 14-day decline we've wanted to see. In fact, that the, the total number of deaths was actually the highest yesterday. But you look all around the country, most states have their cases plateauing. Uh, a couple of them have them starting to decline. And when you start to separate out for things like 
prisons and uh, assisted living facilities, that's where you see the giant rise in those numbers. So if we can manage those facilities, and the good news is the people who are in those facilities generally aren't, you know, hopefully you don't have lots of people in jail going out and interacting with lots of other people. Although if you live in New York City, that may be the case, considering how Mayor de Blasio likes to take people, let people out of jail. We should be able to get a handle on this. Emphasis on should. Uh, and we may be reaching the limit of the patients, of, of the economic patients and the ability of the U.S. economy to, you know, we've put ourselves in a medically induced coma, so to speak, to use that metaphor. And now we're at the point where we really need the patient to wake up. Otherwise, they may not ever come out of this coma. Well, that's a cheery way to end the good martini. Yeah, that's, that's our good martini. All right. Well, let's talk about our bad martini now, Jim. And uh, if you look at most polls, it varies from state to state, obviously, and even some national polls to other national polls. But for the most part, the American public seems to be favoring, let's make sure we've written this out as much as we need to before we reopen everything. Uh, Even though, obviously, as we've discussed just a moment ago, as well as other times, we've got to get the economy going again. uh, And doing that intelligently is obviously very critical. But Morning Consult has been looking at this from a number of different angles. And one of their poll findings today, I think, is very troubling on a couple of different fronts, Jim. This was conducted between April 17th and 19th. And this specific result was among Americans 65 years old and older. The question writing is troubling enough. The result is uh, perhaps horrifying. Should non-essential workers be allowed to move freely outside, not go back to work, should they be allowed to move freely outside? Yes, 16%. No, 75%. So three quarters of seniors, and I would guess a decent chunk of people younger than that, at least in the the next age bracket, believe that uh, if you're not an essential employee, you don't have the right to leave your house. What is happening, Jim? Now, the first thing which is worth keeping in mind is that based on this graphic on MSNBC, this is a poll of Americans 65 years or older. Um, and it splits, as you said, 16% saying, yes, you should be allowed to move freely outside if you're a non-essential worker. 75% saying, no, you can't. Now, obviously, look, this is the demographic that is probably most at risk of, of contracting coronavirus and having serious health conditions and or dying. So maybe it's there looking at this uh, a little bit differently than the average American. Um, I would actually kind of like, because we had discussed the um, wording of the question, Greg, if you had asked Americans 65 years or older, should non-essential workers be allowed to move freely outside on your lawn? <laughs> would, you know, my guess is 99% would say no. So first of all, this may just simply reflect cranky old people who've been stuck inside saying, oh, well, if I got to be stuck inside, you should be stuck inside, not essential. You know, I'd like to think that if we actually, you know, a lot of this depends on the wording of the question, because they may think that this is a question of, you know, should you... Uh, follow the advisories of health officials and public officials, right? And most people say, yeah, you know, I mean, then again, we're not usually used to our governors saying, no, you can't buy seeds and it's dangerous to go out and buy paint. Quick Walmart, you know, cordon off that that uh, aisle of the store. I think that this reflects, you know, a lot of poll questions, if you ask it, you know, depending on how you ask it, are going to come across as, do you take coronavirus seriously? And no matter no matter what people think in this, you know, think about this in practice. Um, the next question, you know, a lot of people say, of course I do, right? You know, anything that sounds like, people probably be very afraid to answer any poll question in a way that suggests they don't think that they take this seriously. So on the one hand, that's a good instinct. It leads them to, to bad. But here's the thing. If you're not allowed to move freely outside, what do these Americans 65 years or older think should happen to you? 
because if it involves arresting, that means putting someone within six feet of them. In most of these cases, strong recommendations are probably going to be the best course of action, and arrests are probably the sort of thing you only want to do for the absolute worst case and most extreme situations, um, because you're automatically putting law enforcement officials at, you know, uh, at, at risk, and then the next thing you, know, you arrest them, what do you do, put them in county jail? You know, right. the places we're already worried about the coronavirus spreading so much? So, you know, my guess is this is an answer that didn't have a lot of thought put into it, I'm choosing to interpret this as a people should listen to officials and, and you know, obey the instructions uh, recommendation and not some version of, you know, we just aren't enough of a police state these days. Uh, but then again, there may be an element of, I suspect this may be driven by pre-existing social conditions like kids that won't get off their lawn. <laughs> Could be. Just the phrasing of should they be allowed to be outside is just chilling that that's even a poll question right now. Uh, a couple Quick other thoughts on this, Jim. First of all, obviously, I'm working from home. You are. Uh, and uh, as far as, you know, working from home, it's gone uh, pretty well. Our technology has held up. Uh, I really like my wife and my kids. Turns out they're really nice people. So that's, that's worked out well. Uh, I also end up taking a walk most days. And uh, that has been really helpful, uh, not only to get some exercise, but uh, other than the virus being out there, uh, the, the spring's been pretty nice out here in the DC area. And just getting that time to be out there is, has been fantastic. And so to, to not even have that option, or people think you shouldn't have that option, if you're considered non-essential is, is quite troubling. Well, so, over Europe, they've done that, right? I mean, they've had, uh, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. They, you know, over, they've, they've had the, you know, the ticketing sunbathers and, and things like that. I got into a disagreement with Gabe Malore uh, on Twitter the other day. And usually he's a guy I get along with pretty well. He interpreted something I'd said saying that people weren't allowed outside. In most places, you're allowed to go outside, uh, at least by law enforcement authorities. Karen may have a different point of view. <laughs> and uh, the neighborhood Karens are the ones who are, you know, not only, you know, yelling at you, you should be walking. Don't walk in, in side by side. Walk single file, as Karen did in my community. By the way, if your name is Karen... If your wife's name is Karen, if someone you love's name is Karen, I'm sorry. I don't make the rules. The internet just decided this. There are a lot of wonderful Karens out there in this world. And in fact, most of the people who are, you know, nosy neighbors who are yelling at each other and ratting out on each other um, are actually not named Karen. My guess is it's an exceptionally small percentage. So if somebody can come up with a better name, maybe that would be better for uh, this scenario. But anyway, in light of that, like, you know, the closing of public parks the closing of public spaces, beaches, and stuff like that really does send the signal that we and the authorities don't want you leaving your house. And I think that's exceptionally unhealthy, not just for coronavirus and the possibility that, you know, uh, vitamin D and sunlight might help. Um, look, you know, people are drinking more. People are sitting inside. You know, Netflix and chill, or just Netflix and drinking is probably not the lifestyle we want lots of Americans practicing right now. At some point, it will be good to get people up and about and around, and I think that time is coming closer closer each day. Exit question on this point. Uh, again, dealing with uh, senior citizens voting here, 65 and up. Uh, another issue uh, that is possibly concerning to President Trump is approval of his handling of the outbreak. Now, when this uh, was first polled by Morning Consult on March 16th, people 65 and older were uh, giving Trump a plus 19 overall. Uh, then it plummeted between March 29th, when he was still at plus 19, down to plus four on April 5th. Now he's underwater with them at minus one, which is below the general adult population. And there was one poll out there, it's just one poll, showing Biden ahead among senior citizens, which has traditionally been Trump's most successful age bracket. Uh, long way to go, of course, but if that continues, that's a big problem. Yeah, you know, look, this is, uh, you know, an issue we will deal with well down the road. 
But I think it is, you know, if you're the Trump campaign, that should make you very nervous. Uh, older voters are going to be one of the bedrock of the Trump administration's re-election base for re-election. By no means is Trump incapable of winning re-election right now. But he is right now in a bit of a pincer movement. Uh, the president is who he is. He has a persona and style and a way of treating people that generally alienates the suburban soccer moms who had voted for other Republicans. And the argument from Republican Party, looking at 2016, was that's okay. We can afford to lose those voters. We will make up the margins amongst blue-collar white workers. And in fact, that ended up being the decisive uh, uh, margin in places like Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania uh, and Iowa and places like that in Ohio. And, and that's that, yeah, okay, that makes sense. That works. The problem is, do you have that high level of support amongst blue collar whites when the economy's in terrible shape? Or do some people say, ah, oh, this president's not working. I'm, I'm mad. I lost my job. The factory shut down. Uh, and of course, the factory shut down by the coronavirus. And despite whatever Trump's flaws are, he didn't, didn't invent the coronavirus and didn't, uh, didn't bring it here. But nonetheless, I think if you're the Trump campaign, you should be worried about that uh, considerably between now and November. All right, Jim, let's move on to our crazy martini now. And this is your lead item in Wednesday's Morning Jolt. Turns out that we had a coronavirus case and even coronavirus deaths long before the first officially reported coronavirus case. Uh, NBC News here, medical officials in California's Santa Clara County in the heart of Silicon Valley indicated late Tuesday that the first U.S. death connected to the coronavirus happened weeks earlier than previously believed. Two deaths on February 6th and February 17th were not initially thought to have been COVID-19 related, but further testing has revealed that they were, according to the county medical examiner. Quote, today the medical examiner coroner received confirmation from the CDC that tissue samples from both cases are positive for SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, and uh, fatality reported by officials in Washington State February 29th had previously thought to be the earliest coronavirus death in the country. So Jim, uh, as soon as I saw this news, I'm thinking, okay, uh, does that mean that a lot more deaths are related to this? And so this was a huge problem before we even realized it. Or does this mean that a lot more people have it than we thought just a couple of days ago, which means it's already run its course a lot more than we previously thought? One of those folks who I, I've gotten into some, you know, pretty, pretty heated disagreements with some people. Um, I don't, if, you, if you're one of those folks around, well, you know, I had a really bad flu back in, uh, you know, beginning of winter, November, December. I think I had coronavirus. I am still pretty darn skeptical of that. But I am open to adjusting my perspective when new information comes to uh, comes to light and it has been verified by the appropriate uh, health authorities. And people have checked on two people who died, one February 6th, the other February 19th, and they both tested positive for coronavirus. So, you know, and by the way, this is about 800 some miles from the case up in Washington state. No one has indicated any particular uh, evidence that this person or that there's some sort of path from the person in Washington state who had just returned from Wuhan, I believe January 15th was when they returned to the country, uh, first got diagnosed around the 20th, 21st, somewhere around there. There's no way connecting this bat case to these people in California. In all likelihood, somebody else was, you know, other, more than this person were coming back from, either from China or from some other part of the, the Far East that had had uh, coronavirus coming back and spreading it around uh, California communities. Now, these California communities don't look like New York uh, City, and they're not, you know, people aren't, you know, killing over in massive numbers. Um, I do think you're going to start people looking back and saying, okay, every pneumonia death, every surprising death at any age during that time period, you know, if you got the manpower, people might want to look back and start looking at this. 
I am now open to the possibility, not the, if November, December, I'm very skeptical. China was dealing with this. The first diagnosed, hey, we've got a case of a novel coronavirus here. The onset of symptoms up back in Wuhan, China was December 1st. Now, I write about this in today's jolt. For what it's worth, the Chinese, an unnamed Chinese government authority told the South China Morning Post their first case was November 17th. Nobody knows what data they show the South China Morning Post. Nobody's been able to verify it. But I should I mention that just to say it, that idea is out there. Now, if you had a terrible flu-like symptoms sometime in early February, okay, maybe now, maybe that was, uh, particularly, you know, if you're, uh, if you can, you know, trace the, your, your interaction with somebody who had uh, recently returned from China or somewhere else in, in Asia, we can move it back a little bit, uh, maybe even to late December. We'll see how this goes. So the, I, I don't quite get into this idea where, oh, there's massive amounts of, amounts of people who had it and didn't show any symptoms. Um, the Santa Clara report saying that probably for every person we've diagnosed anywhere from 50 to 85, guys, that ratio is really high. That, that's a little tough to buy. And I talked about how what happens if you extend that ratio to New York City. Yes, you're going to have different rates of exposure in different parts of the country. But, you know, 10 cases for every person we diagnosed, that sounds, yeah, it could be 20. You know, the, the, the idea of having a lot of cases out there that are not diagnosed and that are getting us a little bit closer to herd immunity that's plausible. I don't think people should be feeling that great about that, though. And there's a pretty good study out of Los Alamos uh, National Laboratories, ran the numbers of how quickly the coronavirus was spreading and said, we probably need to get to about 82% infection rate before we've got herd immunity. That's a lot. By any measure, we're probably not all that close. So hate to be the one who did that. But uh, you know, this is useful, or at least it's kind of a good reminder to all of us. We only know what we think we know. And sometimes we discover new information that shows what we thought we knew was wrong. There were people in the United States dying of coronavirus on February 6th, or at least one person. That's, that's pretty significant there. And we kind of have to back move our, our, diag our sense of when this virus was spreading around the United States, which I think, by the way, puts the, you know, if that was floating around in early February, maybe even late January, all of the efforts that we did in, in mid-March, boy, does that look uh, astonishingly late, Greg. But this is not to say we all should have shut down our entire society back in February, but just kind of recognizing like, why, are, why do we have so many cases all around the country and why is the death toll going up every day? Well, because it was floating around for a long time before we uh, you know, got, our, got ourselves fully into gear to, to deal with the threat of this magnitude. Pelosi's going after uh, Trump now even harder for uh, allegedly not uh, doing stuff uh, sooner. Of course, late February, she was out there in Chinatown saying everybody should come. And uh, we're seeing more stories now, Jim, at least I have, that uh, it's a really good thing the Niners lost. I know we mentioned that in passing on a previous martini, but uh, if they had had a Super Bowl parade, uh, then, uh, then San Francisco would have been a hotbed. I'm not sure that uh, we can go with that, but... Uh, Somebody will make Kyle Shanahan the uh, person of the year if they can ever conclude that that's the case. <laughs> I don't know. You know, there are some people who are like, eh, I would have taken the greater risk for, for a championship. <laughs> so we'll see. Tomorrow's the draft. Uh, I know it's not an actual athletic event, but it is a live thing that uh, ESPN and the NFL Network can do, even though it'll be on uh, a bunch of different uh, – zoom or facetime screens however they're going to work it so uh it's the closest thing we have to live sports jim i think the ratings for this are going to be massive tomorrow yeah you know, you know look how many people are talking about the uh the espn series the last dance we're watching you know highlights of jordan from the, the 80s and 90s we're and we're, and we're riveted it's it's really good by the way at some point you'll at some point we need to do a whole martini on that just uh oh absolutely well anytime i can uh, watch one of my chicago teams uh 
excel, uh, even though there's uh, (laughs) drama behind the scenes, I'll take it. I mean, if you got to have a general manager player infighting that produces six world championships, could be worse. Could be worse. So, Jim, have a great day. We'll talk to you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a kind review with five stars. Don't forget you can get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And please tune in Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.